The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. Oh, well, hello, Karen. Can you all say, well, all right? Okay, good, good. I am very excited to be here and thrilled to be part of your homecoming uh, weekend festivities and, um, and this chapel kickoff for the weekend. It's just really an honor. And um, my wife and I have talked about this for a lot of years. It's hard to believe that 40 years ago, this past summer, oh yeah, <laughs> Shirley Newman and I were married and uh, after being students on the, at that time, Philadelphia College of Bible campus in Center City, Philadelphia, and dating in the wonderful Center City for two years. We got married, found a little apartment right over there in Bristol, and I joined my senior class to be the first students to christen this campus and to graduate from here. So as we celebrated our 40th anniversary, you're celebrating 40th anniversary of this beautiful campus. So. Good times. Oh, yeah. I want to share um, a little bit from a book that I wrote on um, how to build healthy relationships and ultimately choose healthy partner to spend life with. My buddy, by the way, uh, was in the airport and he happened to see this woman reading my book and he just snapped a picture of her, texted it to me and be like, hey, cool, here's somebody reading your book. And I thought, that's great. And then I'm looking closer at the picture and I'm like, oh my gosh, she's got a wedding ring on or, <laughs> or engagement. You know, maybe she's reading it for a friend, right? It's just for a friend. So the reality is that love can be difficult because there are jerks in the world. I came across this old Far Side cartoon where Gary Larson depicted God creating the world and populating it with different types of people and grabs a jar of jerks and says, now this is going to make it interesting. <laughs> well, if you've ever been in a relationship with somebody that was difficult to be with or get along with, interesting is one way to describe it. But there's oftentimes a lot of of difficulty, emotional pain, baggage. But I thought where we could just start is maybe you would just help me out here a little bit and we could kind of do a little shout out of, um, see if this works. What are some characteristics of difficult partners, people that are tough to be with in a relationship? If you don't mind, just kind of shout out a characteristic or two obnoxious always panicking what else what's that arrogant selfish what's that upset <laughs> see Whenever we do this, people tap into their own experience immediately. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, obsessive was one guy three years ago. What was that? Controlling. Yeah. See, you can tell you all have a wealth of experience 
with difficult people. Well, I'm going to kind of run out of room here. We could probably go on the entire chapel and just fill this page up. But I, I just wonder if we could take maybe just a little step back of, of humility and ask a sobering question. How many of you have maybe been uh, overly arrogant in a relationship? Raise your hand. All of the, all of the graduate students. Okay, um... So some of you, how about selfish? Okay, it looks like the same people. Some of you haven't raised your hand. You're the liars. So this is a question I want to ask you. If we all have acted like a jerk now and then, what's the difference between acting like a jerk and being a jerk? We're still doing a little shout-outs. Go ahead. Acting versus being a jerk. What's that? So I'm going to put act versus be. So we got habit, so I assume if it's your habit, it's be, and if it's an exception, not a habit, as it were. What else do you think of? The difference between acting versus being a jerk. Wow. You know, you guys aren't supposed to look at my PowerPoint before I get here, but a persistent resistance to change is truly kind of the core characteristic, isn't it? That we can have all of these things going on in a person's life, but the bottom line is, what are you doing about it when it's put on the table and somebody says, listen, this bothers me, can you work on this? Is there, is there a consistent resistance to change? What is a person's change factor? What really struck me was that we don't really teach people how to date in successful ways. Most of us haven't been to a class on how to build a healthy relationship or dating or what to look for in a partner. And we especially don't teach people this core area of how to assess the change factor in somebody. But I think the, the measure of a change factor is crucial because we've been married 40 years. But I know that when I got married, I had an attitude that, Lord, I want to change because I'm getting married to this woman. Now, some people will say, you know, don't marry somebody to change them. But I had kind of the opposite attitude about myself. I wanted to get married in order, in order to be a better man than I could be on my own. I wanted a woman that was going to bring something out of me that life itself couldn't bring out. And you got to have that change factor with a person, not only yourself, but a partner. There's a favorite scripture that I have from Philippians that really addresses the change factor as well as some aspects of relationships that I just want to point out. It's Philippians chapter 2 where the Apostle Paul writes and he says, Therefore, my dear friends, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act to fulfill his good purpose. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm glad he didn't stop after the word trembling. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Amen. <laughs> You're like, whoa. That's a bit daunting. For it is God that is working in me 
And that Greek word work in is energase. He's energizing me. He's providing me with a power to activate and ignite my will, my motivation, and also my behavior to give me the power to do what pleases him. I just want you to see in this, in this passage, we're all supposed to be in the change process. We're all supposed to be growing and changing, and, and it's really an equation with two parts. There's the God part, and there's the your part. There's what God is doing, and there's your responsibility. I think we have to be careful because we really live in a culture that has a lot of resistance to change, and it's a pretty passive culture nowadays for both personal growth as well as relationships. You know, we've all said this, what will be will be, or it is what it is. How many of you ever said it? it is what it is, right? I've said it, we've all said it. And when it's something that is truly out of control, something I have no ability to actually influence, that little phrase, it is what it is, is fine. It's, it's like a way to, to help me feel a sense of acceptance and peace with something beyond my control. But studies on uh, your generation has found that what's called locus of control, when people feel like the control of their lives is not centered in themselves, they don't have any control, that it's external locus of control is what they call it, rather than internal. And they find that of all generations in history of studying this, this generation has the highest sense of control is out there. We don't feel really in control of our lives. But I want you to see the scripture has both parts of it. God is working in you, but God wants you to work out your very salvation. And there's a different Greek word. It's an interesting word that was used in secular writings back in the Roman times to refer to soldiers that were working in the minefields, the silver mines of Spain. And it meant to extract. They said they were working the silver out of the mines. And what the Apostle Paul is kind of creating as a word imagery is as God is energizing you, you are to mine out of your salvation, the deposit God made in you, all of the practical skills for running your life in a way that fulfills his good purpose. There's two parts of this equation. And what I really want you to kind of center in on is that the context of this passage is really not so much about personal growth. It's really about relationships. What Paul is saying when he says the word therefore, and by the way, it's been 40 years since I graduated here, but I still can't read the Bible and see the word therefore without this question echoing in my head. What is it? Okay, there you go. We got some in the room that remember that. And if you go back, the beginning of the chapter is all about relationships. And it kind of culminates in this statement where he says, listen, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ. And then he breaks into this wonderful description of the mindset of Christ. And then he gets down to verse 12 and he says, listen, in conclusion, relationships are successful, he's saying, when there are two parts going on with equal effort, God energizing you and you digging out the practical applications. I just want you to, to realize this. Relationships don't run themselves. We live in a culture that I believe looks at relationships as self-maintaining and self-running and even self-starting. 
And we tend as Christians sometimes to spiritualize the philosophy of our culture and we don't even know we're doing it. So we say, oh, you know, when God wants me in a relationship, you know, bring me into a relationship, you know, when it happens, it happens. What's happening in your relationship right now? Well, I don't know, you know, it's just kind of moving along. We'll see where it goes. It'll be what it will be. It is what it is. And if we're not careful, we begin to see our role in relationships as completely passive, just a, more of an observer rather than a participant and a director. I want you to see that we want to replace what is a cultural philosophy of relationship with a real biblical theology of relationships that says, listen, God's going to work in you and in your relationships, but you need to do your part. So you say, well, what is that? What is the part? Well, in the book and what I've kind of summarized in the programs that I've developed off of that book is that my head and my heart are designed to work together. And I'll just give you kind of a full disclosure. I, when I was writing that book, I, I had this major decision. Do I write it with scripture and, and try to present it to the Christian world? Or do I just try to show from research that the best of psychosocial research supports biblical values? And I'm not even going to mention scripture. I'm just going to let science support God's word in a way that the whole world can see. And I decided to write that way. McGraw-Hill published it. It's been used as a textbook in different uh, universities across the country. And part of the reason that I say that to you is I want you to know that your faith teaches you a certain way to grow in relationships, a certain way to, to build relationships, and particularly to choose a partner to spend your life with and become involved ultimately in marriage. God has plans and values and principles in his word, but I really want you to know this too, that science is on your side. That I've read thousands of research studies, organized them, about how the head and the heart should work together. In fact, the way I came across five areas that were the most important predictors of what a person will be like in marriage, things you can get to know about them long before they're married, that multiple research studies have said these things predict how a person will function in marriage. I gathered over a hundred research studies, cataloged them, and found that they kind of fell in these five areas. And that's what we're going to go through in uh, the room BL-132 at 3 o'clock this afternoon. We don't have time to go through those today in chapel. So sorry, you're not going to get the five areas. But I really find that what Paul said at the beginning of his letter to the Philippians, I want your love to abound. I want it to grow more and more in what? Real knowledge and all discernment. That's a wonderful principle that our head and our heart Love, our heart, how we bond with somebody should also be blended with how we discern who that person is. And discerning love is the true biblical model for how to grow in relationships. So, that kind of begs the question, if we're supposed to run our relationship, what exactly does that mean? What does that look like? And what exactly is a relationship? Well, if you look up the word relationship in the dictionary, you would find that the word connection keeps repeating. It's a, it's, a, it's a bond, it's a connection between you and another. Well, that didn't tell me a whole lot. So when I was doing my doctoral work, I was really immersed in relationships. I was focused on relationship theory. Um, I'd been focused on that through my uh, couple masters and my doctorate. I was uh, 
focused on our relationship in marriage. We'd been married less than 10 years at the time. We had two uh, preschool kids, two daughters, and, um, I, and I had pastored a church, and now I was in a counseling practice. It seemed like I was, everywhere was about relationships. When I looked in the scriptures, everywhere I looked, I just saw relationship after relationship. And I, and I said, you know, what's really missing is a practical way to conceptualize what exactly a relationship is. If we're supposed to run a relationship, we need a job description as to what's involved in that. So I developed a theoretical model that, for me, I'm very visual, helps me to see this is what a relationship. If it's a connection, here are the specific connections. How you know somebody and they know you, this creates a bond. How you trust them and they trust you, that on its own is also bonding. Your reliance, how you depend on them, they do things for you, you do things for them. Your commitment level, touch, anywhere from just affectionate touch all the way to sexual activity. These five areas have huge bodies of research and theory about each one individually because each one on its own is a major source of how we connect and bond. I'll give you a quick example. About 15 years ago, my wife and I lived in Cleveland, Ohio area, just south of that. Any Ohioans in here? Okay, that's, that's actually what I say. But I was there, I grew up in Ohio, lived there for uh, 50 years. We raised our family there, and we're now in Southern California, and we don't miss Ohio at all. But it's, it's, uh, it's a, it was a wonderful time, and I got on an airplane to um, actually go teach this program at a university. And so I sit down, and this woman comes, and she's like, kind of manic, you know, she's all happy and excited. She's probably in her early 60s and she's got all these bags like she's been shopping and she's shoving them under the seat and up in the bin. And I'm like, um, when she sits down, you know, and I look at her and our eyes kind of meet. I'm like, oh, hi, are you, um, are, are you going home? Looks like you've been shopping, like where everybody wants to go to Cleveland, Ohio to go shopping. So um, she's like, no, 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 I'm from Cleveland area, but we were flying to uh, St. Louis. She goes, I'm going to St. Louis. That's where my kids all live, and they're all grown, and they have grandkids, and, and I, I work here in this area, and I haven't been back home for over a year, and, and I took two weeks vacation. I just spent all my time with my grandbabies, and she starts rummaging through her purse to, to pull out what? Pictures, you know, before, this before smartphones, and she pulls out actually a photo album. She goes, let me show you. Let me show you my kids. So here's, here's our relationship, okay? See if this makes sense. I don't know this person, everything's all, so she starts showing me pictures. Well, she is so excited, I'm just kind of doing bobblehead listening, you know, do you ever do grunt bobblehead? So everybody show me like, mm-hmm, uh, kind of show me what that looks like. Well, after like 20, 25 minutes, you know, she's still going on and on, telling me stories about her family. I'm getting to know her, all right? And when she gets done, we're like up in the air flying, and I'm just still bobbing. I mean, I kind of got into a, like a little rhythm dance. And she stops and I'm just, and then I realize, and she realizes, oh my gosh, I don't even know this guy's name. She goes, who are you? <laughs> she goes, I just shared my whole family with you. Who are you? And I said, well, I'm John Van Epp. And, and she goes, where are you going? And I said, well, I'm going to Concordia University. And, and um, what are you doing there? Well, I'm teaching graduate students uh, a program that I developed. Uh, and I teach them and then they teach others. It's like a train-to-trainer program. She's like, oh my gosh. So is this like a business program? I said, no, it's a, it's a, it's a relationship program. It doesn't have a real academic name, but it's, yeah. It's. She goes, well, what's the name? I go, well, it's called uh, How to Avoid Marrying a Jerk. 
She goes, oh my gosh, where were you when I needed you? I've been married five times. And then she looks at me and she goes, let me tell you about my first husband. I mean, we had another hour on the flight. I mean, by the time we got there, I had heard about all five husbands and what's going on in her life right now. I met her whole family, her kids, her grandkids. It was like, you know, when we stood up to say goodbye, what do you think she did in the aisle? Yeah, she gave me a, but I'm going to make it crooked because I didn't hug her back because five husbands, I mean, come on. Something doesn't look right there. I mean, I'm a married guy. So this is what I'm trying to say to you. Listen, I could tell you story after story about each of these five areas. Each one on its own contributes to how we bond. She felt known. She didn't even really know anything about me other than, you know, I'm an author and I have this program. But other than that, she knew nothing about me. But because she felt known, she felt bonded. When I saw these major areas, it struck me. They're not independent entities unrelated to each other. They're really parts of a whole. They interact with each other. One plays off the other. And if you really want to understand what is happening in your relationship, you can plot out the bonds of a relationship on this, on this model. You know, And you can start to see where you are in how a person meets your needs and you do for them and they do for you and how... You guys take care of each other, and you can start to see what you believe and trust about them. This starts to be a GPS system for helping us to visualize what is going on in our relationship, as well as to help us know how to get where we need to get going. So I just want to give you a guiding principle. I call it the safe zone, and see if this makes sense to you. It's pretty intuitive. There is just a logical progression or sequence don't let one level, in a brand new relationship, when you're working a new relationship, don't let a level get higher than the previous. So don't, don't trust somebody more than you know them. Can you see how that gets risky? And don't start forming some kind of a, a, an emotional bond or a connection of reliance and doing for them and they do for you beyond what you know and trust. And certainly, this area, don't get too involved in the physical realm beyond these other areas. This is a biblical kind of principle, but there's just a logical understanding of that. And I know this never happens at Karen University, but it happens at other places all around you. The safe zone says, listen, I need to be responsible for how I develop this relationship by the power of God. But my responsibility is right there to, to, to maintain the bonds in a safe way. So I've got a few minutes left. I just want to kind of zero in as an example of what it looks like to really kind of like maintain a relationship in a positive way, all right? So I'm just going to have you kind of think about this. So we're going to talk about trust just for a couple minutes. Trust, by the way, is not the same as knowing somebody. There's some people that you, you know and you trust, but then as you start to get to know them a little better, your trust goes what direction? Right? These things are different. And there are other people, I find a lot of times, they actually know very little about them, but they trust them a lot. And that can be really dangerous. I came across this article about a man in Algeria suing his brand new wife for fraud, trauma, and, quote, psychological suffering 
after seeing her for the first time without any makeup. He said she looked very beautiful and attractive before marriage, but when he woke up in the morning and found that she had washed the makeup off her face, he was frightened as he thought she was a thief. That guy's going to have trust issues, right? Listen, you gotta, you got to have your trust be guided by what you know. So let me just kind of zoom in and give you a little practical definition of trust. Trust is a feeling of confidence, but it doesn't come directly from what you know. It isn't like whatever that person is automatically determines your trust. Trust is what you do with what you know. It's how you take what you know and you organize it in a picture in your mind, a representation of that person. You have, we call it a trust picture. And by the way, we do this with our relationship with God. We grow in the Word, we study the Word, we get to know God through the, the revelation and nature, as well as the supernatural revelation in the Scriptures. But ultimately, you are responsible for taking that, what you get to know, and organizing it. And some people have really distorted God images. And it affects their feelings of trust around the Lord. But the same is true with all of our human relationships. Everybody you know, you form some mental representation of them, and you relate to them through the filter of that representation. A quick example is from the book of Acts. Paul and Barnabas were planning a second missionary journey. And if you remember, on the first missionary journey, they had taken John Mark. And after going through a couple towns, John Mark dropped off. We don't really know why, but he, he split. So when they got ready to go on a second missionary journey... It was a matter of what is your trust of John Mark? Well, Barnabas said, hey, let's take John Mark on the second journey. And Paul said, no way, I don't trust him. And Barnabas was like, I do trust him. And they both knew the same thing. But what was different was Barnabas brought positive qualities of John Mark to the forefront of his mind. And Paul brought the negative qualities of John Mark to the forefront of his mind. I want you to see that we all have a responsibility for what we do with what we know about people, how we organize it, and that influences our trust. Let me give you a quick example from a psych theory of child development, and this is really just an opportunity for you, me to show you Shirley's and my grandchildren. So this is Effie, Roy, and little Wesley. I don't know how we ended up with three beautiful blue-eyed baby grandbabies, but... Uh, the Lord blessed us. So for all three of them, when they were around four or five months old, there was this little game that we played. You probably played it with your own siblings or cousins or somebody, nephew or niece, where you say like, you know, I would say to little Wesley, where's Pa's head? Where's Pa's head? And what do you say? Peekaboo, right? How many of y'all played peekaboo, right? Well, let me tell you the psych theory behind peekaboo. It's called object relations theory. And basically it just said this, that when it, a baby is born, that baby does not have any images in his mind to represent objects in the world. So when he sees something, it exists. But when you remove it, he doesn't have an image to represent it. So out of sight, out of mind. But somewhere around four or five months, that little, that little tyke starts to form mental representations. So they start to have this period of time where it's kind of hazy and everything. So when you go, where's my head? 
they, they don't, not quite sure if it's there or not. That's just kind of starting to develop. In fact, if you've ever seen like an early infant, like maybe four, right at four, five, right when they start playing this, they look like this. Where's my head? Where's my head? Peekaboo. <laughs> did, did you ever see that? <laughs> yeah, you know what that is? Trauma. <laughs> yeah. You just traumatize that poor little guy. Because think about it. He didn't have a, a, a clear picture of your head, so you, would you, you cut your head off. You decapitated yourself. If you could see his face, he'd be like. And then when you go, here it is, they're like, ah, oh my gosh. What? And if that little guy could talk, he'd be like, pa, don't do that again. But you do it over and over. You can do it 100 times, and the 101st time, they're, they're going to do that motion. Now, this is what I want you to realize. What started to develop at four or five months is still going on in your brains today. It's how you relate to everything in the world through matching. Everybody you know, you create some mental representation and it becomes your trust picture because it informs you whether you can feel safe with them, whether you're secure with them, how much you can trust them. And it's related to what you kind of bring to the forefront. Now, this is so important. New relationships are highly accelerated in how we form trust, typically, because we get to know a little bit, and particularly if in the new relationship you meet somebody, and I'll make this crooked because you got some chemistry with them, you know, you like them, there's a spark going on. You know, you're attracted to them, you're kind of hanging with them, and what you get to know, even though it's just a little bit, is very positive. And all of a sudden, you fill in all the gaps and your trust goes way up. But you got to realize this. In the beginning of every relationship, you're really just getting to know the person's representative. And it wasn't until later that you begin to meet the reality of who they are. It's like, it's like their Instagram picture, right? I want you to know that what you know should ultimately be more factual about them. We call it the three T's. How you talk what you learn from your togetherness with them, seeing them in different moods and different situations. And the third T is talking and togetherness have to, have to happen over time. As you get to know somebody, that should inform the level of trust. And sure, you can believe the best in them, but know that you've inflated your belief and bring it back down. Run your relationship trust. You be responsible for it. It doesn't just happen. It doesn't just run itself. The real danger is that we're doing relationships in our culture backwards. I mean, people build trust right away. They don't even know the person. We don't even know what to get to know about somebody that is very indicative of who they are, their character, and their relationship potential. And we're doing this right away. If there's any way that we're doing relationships backward, it's through touch. And I don't know if you ever noticed this, but the word ouch is in the word touch. You know, but God designed for a physical kind of closeness and bond to be done in a way with the covenant of marriage where it's most secure, where there's a strong trust. It is a relationship bond that is greater than anything you can ever imagine. But take it out of context and do a relationship backwards or just let the relationship kind of run itself. We'll see where it goes. I don't know what my boundaries are. You know, it is what it is. We'll just see when it happens, it happens. 
Just let the relationship run itself and you'll see that it doesn't run itself well. God wants us to know and rely on his power, but he also wants us to build relationships in the safe zone. And if we do that, then our head and heart works together. But when things get out of balance, many times the bond of your heart begins to override the judgment of your mind. And we see this over and over. People make poor decisions when the bonds of their heart override the judgment of their mind. Remember what Romans said, what Paul said to the Romans, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. There's ways that people are doing relationships. We need to mine out of the scriptures. I tried to do that and put it in with social science in a way that is a very practical plan that we are being transformed by God, but we're the ones testing and proving out God's will in our relationships. The head and the heart are meant to work together. As I said, if you want to know the five areas that I believe are, are the strongest predictors from psychosocial science and clearly biblical of what a person's like, then come on and join us at three. We'd be glad to have you. But I just want you to know God has a plan for us but he wants us to make a plan for what to get to know about somebody, how to choose a partner, and ultimately how to run our relationships, to follow our hearts without losing our minds. Let's pray together. Our gracious Lord, we're so thankful for this chapel, for its time. I'm so thankful for this opportunity to be back on campus and with fellow students. And we all rely on you, Lord. We all have a relationship with you where we grow in knowing you and take that into our trust beliefs and take steps of faith to rely on you and keep rekindling our commitment. And we know because Jesus came from the eternal realm of heaven in his incarnation to the physical realm of humanity and resurrected back with that physical body that Touch is part of our relationships today and on into eternity. Help us to be good stewards of our relationships. To honor you, to rely on you, but to take responsibility for growing in ways that please you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. And you are all dismissed. Oh, thank you very much.